uh, Exodus 25, as we uh, continue in our series in the book of, um, of Exodus. Uh, we'll read this morning verses 23 to 40, and it is our practice to stand when we read God's word. Sometimes we don't when the passage is long enough. Um, uh, if you're able, uh, let's, let's stand as we read God's word together. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close, close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. And you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out to one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out to the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with, its, with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under, which, under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for which for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in this, your word. Teach us, grow us, point us to Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I, um, I, I did some math the other day, and, and uh, we are um, almost exactly a year into uh, our series in Exodus. Uh, Forty sermons. Uh, next Sunday would be a year. We actually started April 18th of last year, uh, and we're 40 sermons in now. We'll finish in June, July. Um, uh, but uh, I said then, I bring that up because I said this then, and I'm, I'm saying it again now. Um, I told this story then. I'm going to tell it again now. When I was getting ready to start the series, um, I told a friend of mine here in town that I was starting a, a series in Exodus. 
And his response was, there's some good stuff there, but there's a lot of history. And, and my takeaway, knowing what I know about him, uh, knowing who he is and, and, and that sort of thing, uh, and the look on the face and the tone in his voice, uh, my takeaway was, why? That really what he wanted to say is, I mean, I'm sure there's some good helpful stuff in Exodus, but, but why? I mean, why bother? Because his, his question reflects a, a theology that says, well, the Old Testament is Israel's history, thus his comment. There's some good stuff there, but there's a lot of history. And he was trying to say it as positively as he could. That's Israel's history. What we really need is the New Testament. That's the Jesus part. That's the, that's the part that matters for us, the New Testament church. That's, that's just history. And so I guess you're going to just study some history of Israel. And I guess that would be good and helpful somehow. That, that was my takeaway of what he actually really <clears throat> meant. It reflects this notion that the Old Testament is merely for Israel and really doesn't have a whole lot of use or benefit for us today, why would you bother preaching through a book that talks about Israel leaving Egypt and heading towards the promised land? And quite honestly, in that book, doesn't actually get there. Except and I, I, I couldn't bring myself to say it to him. So I'll say it to you. And this is what I should have said to him. But I'll say it to you. Um, except that here's the catch, though, right? The Old Testament is the only Bible Jesus had. The Old Testament is the only Bible Peter and Paul had. It was from the Old Testament that Peter was preaching Jesus in Acts 2 when 3,000 people got converted. It was from the Old Testament that Jesus was preaching Jesus on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. The New Testament didn't exist yet. And so just as Peter, just as Christ himself preached Christ from the Old Testament, so too we preach Christ from the Old Testament and besides Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is God's word. And what's he talking about? Primarily the Old Testament. At that point, most of the New Testament had been written, but was not yet necessarily collected all into one place. We need those reminders again when you read a passage about a table and a lampstand. You need the reminder that this isn't merely an architecture chapter. This isn't a chapter on how we should decorate a church or how you should decorate your home. And you read about furnishings in, um, in Exodus or in Leviticus or Numbers. And, and this isn't about furniture for your home or how you should decorate it. This is it's a reminder that, that this passage is about Christ himself there's more here than architecture than furniture design than than lampstand building or even than mere history these furnishings point us to Christ notice first as you walk into uh, the holy place uh, in the tabernacle uh, there will be a table in that room. Now we're talking here when you when you say tabernacle. There's an outer courtyard, and we haven't got this. Is the odd thing, right? We're filling the tabernacle. We already looked at the ark, the table, the lamps. We're filling the tabernacle before we've been given the instructions on the tent itself, on building the tabernacle. That actually comes in the next couple of chapters. 
there's a giant courtyard area. When you talk about the tabernacle, that's the courtyard. The tabernacle is the tent part, the large tent part inside of that courtyard. There's a small room on the inside, literally 15 by 15 room, that, that has the Ark of the Covenant in it. And just before you get in there is a larger room, it's twice that size, that has a couple of pieces of furniture in it, including this table and the lampstand. This is the larger of the two Rooms. It's the place the priest would go much more frequently. The Holy of Holies, the most holy place. He only went once a year and he's in this, this holy place much more frequently. And it talks about the, the furniture in that holy place. And you notice um, there's no overstuffed lazy boy. Like, that was the thing that sort of stood... Like, it uses the language of furnishings or furniture, and there's no chair. Because the priest isn't going to get to sit down. He doesn't need a place. He's in there working. He's, he's maintaining this labor of, of sacrifice for God's people, of interceding uh, between God and, and the people. He's not going to get to sit down. He doesn't need a chair. And that even that reminds you that, that we say that Christ sat at the Father's right hand. Because His work is finished. The work of the true great high priest is finished. But you walk in this room and first you see this table. It's, it's made of acacia wood just like the ark. It's overlaid with gold just like the ark. It's got rings for the poles for carrying the table just like the ark did. That's how they carried all the most of the furniture. There's a rim around it. You get caught up in some of the details of where where, where exactly is this rim and, and where exactly is is it down around the legs or is it up around the top? And you know the reality is if that mattered, we would have those specific particular details there's gold plates and bowls for incense there's gold flagons and bowls for for um, drink offerings but even then you notice you don't get a whole lot of detail in this passage this is merely God telling Moses to tell the people this is what you're going to make and this is how you're going to make it and we'll get to the other details later but in verse 30, there's an assumption made. In verse 30, we're told, You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Um, one of the things, I've, you've heard this before, um, but I keep going back to it because I know I'm right. Uh, one of the things I hate about reading Agatha Christie books is that is that Poirot has access to information that you're never given. And so he can figure out the who done it because he knows things you don't know, which means you're really never given a chance to figure out who done it. 
right? He he knows information like you're looking for secrets and and information along the way and triggers and sort of information that makes you go, huh, this sounds kind of out of place. Like I probably should keep this in mind because this may matter eventually. You read through Exodus. We haven't read about the bread of presence yet. It, out of nowhere, this is where you're going to put the bread of the presence. And by the way, that word presence is literally before my face. The bread of the before my face. God says to his people. But I want you to see in Leviticus 24. Turn to Leviticus 24. Because there we get actually more information. Um, much of Leviticus sort of unpacks the details and specifics and particulars uh, of worship in the Old Covenant. And in verse 24, not only do you get a little more information about the bread, it's about the, the table and what's going on there, but you actually get a little bit of the recipe for the bread of the presence. Notice in, in Leviticus 24, verse 5, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. You shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. You shall put uh, pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Did you notice that you get a little bit of the recipe? Two tenths of an ephah of this fine flour um, in each loaf. That's rough. If I did my math right, there's a lot of fractions involved. If I did my math right, that's 18 cups of flour in each loaf. Not, not, not you take the 18 cups and you make a big giant loaf of bread and then you cut it into 12. That's 18 cups of flour in each loaf of bread. And there's 12 loaves and they're in these two piles of six, two rows or piles or stacked on top of each other. And every single week, Aaron and the priest would go in and get to eat last week's bread. You can go to the day-old bread store. He went to the week-old bread store. And they could eat last week's bread and they would put the new bread. And every day, every week, um, a new 12 loaves were made the day before the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, Aaron uh, would go in and replace uh, the old loaves. But I don't want you to think of this as glorified Santa Claus cookies. Right? I don't want you to think of this as like the cookies you leave out on the table for Santa on Christmas Eve. Like we're going to put the cookies out and then every so often Aaron gets to go in and eat. Or even more, that we're going to leave this bread in here as though we're feeding God, as though He needs something from us, as though He depends on this bread for His own nourishment. See, that, was, that would have been normal under ancient Near Eastern culture uh, in, in the cultures around Israel. Well, we've got to put this bread out so that, so that our God can eat. Their gods depended on them. But this passage says 
that God's people depend on him, not the other way around. So this isn't glorified Santa Claus cookies. There's 12 loaves, one loaf for each tribe of Israel. And what is bread? It's God's, it's a sign, a picture of God's basic provision for his people. So this table with its 12 loaves of bread stacked up on the table inside this holy place is a reminder that God provides for his people. That God takes care of his people. And because it's the bread of before my face, God's people are never hidden from him. It's not like, you know, oh, I I looked away for a second, right? Your kids are constantly saying, Daddy, did you see this? Mama, did you see that? Did you see what I just said? Well, no, because I turned to look to make sure the dog hadn't run out into the street. And so I didn't see it. God doesn't turn his head to make sure the dog didn't run and somehow, somehow miss what's going on with his people. His people are always in his presence. And this bread is a reminder uh, that that God provides for his people and watches over them and cares for them and that they are always before his face. Besides, what does Jesus teach us to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. I haven't eaten any bread yet today. Does that mean he didn't give me my banana? Does that mean he didn't give me my eggs? Does that mean he didn't give me the food? I mean, if I eat steak and I don't eat bread... If I have eggs, but I don't eat toast, does that mean that didn't... It doesn't mean literally bread. It means the food, the sustenance, the nourishment that we need. This table is set in the holy place before God's face so that the people will know we're always on his mind. We're always right where he can see us. And the things that we have... He provides for us. It's a picture of God providing for his people and of having fellowship with his people around a table meal. Of course, you you know our greatest need isn't lunch. Now, some of you might be thinking, I didn't eat breakfast. Or I didn't get much breakfast. And what I really need right now is a snack. What I really need right now is food. In fact, quite honestly, that's my greatest need is a little bit of food in my belly. You know that's not true, right? I mean, this is an 18 cup of flour loaf of bread. And you could eat that loaf of bread. By the way, I have no idea. I know zero. I know less than zero about baking bread. I know flour goes in it. And after that, I'm done, right? So like I have in my head, I have no idea. Like some of you might be thinking 18 cups of flour is a loaf of bread about the size of you. I don't know. But you could eat an entire 18 cup of flour loaf of bread and you will eventually be hungry again. What if there was bread you could eat and then never get hungry? What if there was a loaf of bread that you could eat and you could eat of that bread and you would say, you know what? That's all I need. I don't need anything else. I don't actually need anything more than that loaf of bread. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said about himself? I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me will not go away hungry, will live forever. Whoever eats this bread will live forever and never hunger again. In other words, this table points us to Christ as the bread of life provided by by the Father for our greatest need, which isn't our belly, it's our soul. That's one of the reasons, by the way, we don't have altars in our churches today. We We don't sacrifice Jesus again. We have a table around which we will eat and feast together. In this holy place, if you're standing at the table, if you were to turn around and look behind you, there's also a lampstand. This is um, one of those furnishings that doesn't actually have any wood in it. It's all made out of solid gold. One solid piece of gold hammered into, quite honestly, what looks like a tree. If you took a tree and and smushed all the branches so that it was as two-dimensional as a tree could be, all the branches kind of went out on the same plane. Math people, where are we? Three branches out one way, three branches out the other way. It makes for an odd looking tree. But that's basically what this resembles. You walk into uh, the holy place and, and even with all the gold in the room, the gold lampstand, the gold on the table, even with all, the, the, the curtains are so thick and dark You need light. And Thomas Edison hasn't lived yet. And so you can't flip a switch, turn a knob on the lamp, and and your light bulb come on and light in the room. You had to rely on candles. And so this tree is a giant candle tree. And, And on the ends of the branches are bowls for oil that is to be refilled regularly so that the candles can burn and provide light for the holy place, for the the priest to work and uh, for the room. And it's got these flowers and blooms and blossoms and seedling kind of things out of which the branches grow. There's some on the pole and some on the end, this calyx. The point is, it's a, it gives you a little bit of a glimpse back to the original tabernacle. Right? It gives you a, a glimpse back to the original temple and the tree of life in the garden. The, the first temple, the first place where God's people had... God's presence, unmediated, immediate presence and and could worship and serve him. And so it points back to the tree of life planted there in the Garden of Eden. But you notice the detail, verses 33 to 36. It, it got a little cumbersome to read. I hope you noticed it. Um, maybe I should have fumbled more to call attention to it. But there's this, it's repetition. Three cups made like almond blossoms, verse 33, each with calyx and flower on one branch. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. Like the repetition of the specifics and the particulars. When you get repetition like that, especially when numbers are involved, Hebrew writers are trying to tell you 
give you the picture of entirety, of completion, of totality. In other words, that tells the maker of the lampstand, you don't get to interpret. You don't get to tinker. You don't get to decide, well, this way would be better than that way. This has implications for our worship, right? You think about all the ways we think, well, this whole preaching thing. I mean, not only does Jeff go way too long, but I'm just pretty sure it is not at all a helpful tool in the world today. We got to come up with something better. Like it might have been fine in the 16th, 17th centuries and it would work okay for the Puritans, maybe for the reformers, but do we really, I mean, we're in a visual world. I mean, maybe we just think to show movies instead of preaching. Like, we try to invent new and creative and better and new and improved and space-age polymer ways of worshiping God. Part of the implication of this repetition in this passage is to say, is to say you don't get to interpret. You don't get to change the plan. This is God's design. In fact, it ended with that language, right? Make them after the pattern for them. There's nothing left to our imagination. There's nothing left for us to come up with new and improved, better ways of worshiping God. This passage indicates that we're limited in worship to doing exactly what God tells us to do. That's part of even the point of see that you make them after the pattern for them. This lamp doesn't just shine light in the room or shine light towards the table so the, the priest could see to work. Why do you have lights in your house? Have you ever thought about this? So, I mean, you're because it's dark. So I can see to cook. Like, I can't see to read or cook or do my homework if I don't have light. I've got a lamp on my desk so I can read for school and I can do my math problems. Last week, Nancy and I were in North Georgia. I took Monday to Friday to study leave. Um, did some sermon prep for the rest of the year. Um, and, and when we left... Uh, I plugged a timer into the outlet in our den. I don't, you can't tell people this, right? Just, just between us. I don't want this getting out. Um, I mean, it's on a recorded sermon. Um, but I don't want people knowing it, right? So I put a timer and I plugged the lamps into the timer. And at a certain time every morning, the light lamps came on. And at a certain time every morning, the lamps went off. And then at a certain time every evening, the, you know why I did that? To, to make people think I was home, right? So you have lights in your house, yes, so you can see, but you also have lights in your house so that other people will know you're there. This light doesn't go out. It's a reminder to God's people that God is there, that God is home, that God is there in that room with his people. And just as David said, look, the highest height, the deepest depth, the dark, I can't get away from God in any of those places. And God says, look, I'm, I'm here. The light's on and somebody actually is home. I'm not leaving. I haven't left you. I've not forsaken you. I've not turned my back on you. 
this light again points us to Christ who would bring light and life to his people. Communicates God's presence with his people. Jesus is the light of the world, John 8 tells us. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In John 9, Jesus says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So let me ask you this. He's not in the world now, not physically here in the world now. So what? What happened to that light? Is there anything else in the Bible? Is there anything else in the Gospels that Jesus says, I am this, and then turns around to his disciples and says, you are this? Besides light? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But then in Matthew 5, he looks at you and says, you're the light of the world. Where you are is my presence. Where my people are is my presence in this world. When I send you out into the darkness, you take the light of the gospel. You take the light of Christ with you. Philippians 2, we're told to shine like stars. You say, oh, but it's so dark out there. The world's getting so dark and difficult and it's scary. But we all want a dark night when we want to see the stars. You don't want a lot of light around you when you want to see the stars. You need the darker the night, the brighter the stars. This passage points us to Christ as the light of the world. And now we've been sent out as his light. To take God's presence with his his people and into the world. And where that light shines. God's glory is. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We thank you that you've called us to be uh, your people, to be your own, and to bear the light of Christ wherever we might go. Just as you reminded the Israelites that I am here and with my people so too, Father, would you remind us that you are with us and that you are with us when we go out into the darkness. Father, would you grant us the grace to take the light of Christ wherever we go. In Christ's name and for his sake, we ask it. Amen.